I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. Hey, what's up, Exeter Valley Church? It's uh, good to be with you on the video screen uh, this morning. And uh, thanks so much for uh, being patient with this process, uh, uh, watching me on the screen today. Um, but I am recording this on Friday before we head down to see um, Gunner play in the state championship game. I wonder if he won or, or lost. I don't know. I guess you guys know, but I don't know yet. Um, so anyways, uh, thanks for uh, putting up with this digital form here. Maybe I look better on camera. I don't know. There's editing. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, as a kid, um, the Christmas story always started in Luke chapter two. And I don't know if any of you grew up in homes like this, but in my home, um, we would we always had to read the Christmas story before we could open up our presents on Christmas morning. And we always started in Luke chapter two. You know, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. But the, the Christmas story actually starts in Luke chapter one. And that's where I want to go today to get us started. Uh, and uh, the reason is because uh, there's a really cool part of the story uh, in, in Luke chapter one. And I think it, it really tells us a lot and points us towards uh, the idea of worship and what it looks like to worship in the Christmas story. And so um, some of you are familiar, but some of you aren't. So I'm just going to tell the story. See, there's this guy named Zechariah and uh, Zechariah was a priest and he was married uh, to a woman named Elizabeth. And, and she was also uh, from the priestly line. And so in the story, one day, Zechariah is at the temple doing his thing. He's burning his incense like a 1970s flower child. And uh, while he's doing that, an angel visits him. And the angel comes to him and tells him, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to a son. And uh, you're going to name that son John. And so, well, as we know, that John is John the Baptizer, or JTB, as we call him affectionately here at Exeter Valley Church. And um, all kinds of great things were, were promised to Zechariah um, through the life of John. Now, the thing about the story, though, is that Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. He doubts the angel. And he tells the angel, well, there's no way that can happen because my wife is barren. We're really old. We can't have children. So what happens to him at that part of the story, because of his doubt, Zechariah goes mute. No more talking right there. He goes completely mute. So anyways, uh, the story moves on a little bit. And it turns out that we find Elizabeth is actually Jesus' mother's uh, Mary's relative. So Elizabeth and Mary are, are relatives. And when Mary finds out that she's pregnant, she has to kind of get out of Dodge because uh, being pregnant, 
before you're married in that society was actually cause for death. And so it says in the story that she hurries away to her cousin Elizabeth's house. And that's where I want to pick up the story. So Mary comes into Elizabeth's house and it says in the story that the baby in Elizabeth's womb actually leaped for joy. So get this, John the Baptist, little embryo in, in his mother's womb, leaps for joy when Jesus, another little embryo in his mother Mary's uh, womb, enters into the house. John's response to the presence of Jesus, even at that early stage in life, was to leap for joy in worship. And Elizabeth notices this, and she tells Mary, you're pregnant. This is amazing. Look what's going to happen through the life of your baby. And, and Mary is like, yeah, you're right. This is awesome. And this is where I left off last time. Mary says, you're right. This is awesome. And she begins to sing a song of praise, a song of worship. And so, as I told you last time, Mary's response was, was obedience to what God had called her to. And it was also a response of praise. And we call this song that Mary sung the Magnificat. It's a really famous song in scripture. So I wanted to take a look at that story and have that story kind of lead us towards how we can grow in our response of worship. And last time I, I defined worship uh, through the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 12, uh, verse 1. And I said that worship is a response to who God is and to what God has done. And worship is a lived ritual, meaning that we, we can offer our bodies, Paul says. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as living rituals. And that is actually the pure and right and good and holy act of worship. See, worship is an orientation of the heart. It's a posture of the heart first and foremost. And we we tend to think about worship just in the terms of song or spiritual activity, but worship is first and foremost in our orientation of the heart. It's a response to what God has done, to who God is, and it's a lived ritual. It's, a, it's an orientation of the heart that leads us into action. So I ended my message with this Magnificat, Mary's famous song, her response to the angel's words. And, uh, you know, the thing that I, that I so appreciate about Mary in this instance is that Mary didn't just sing songs about God. She didn't just sing her worship to God. She showed her worship through obedient living. And we got to remember that when we talk about singing and we're going to talk about here about what it looks like to praise God uh, in our corporate gatherings together. But we got to remember that the first way, the primary way that we worship the Lord is through our actions it's through the orientation of our heart. It's through the lived ritual that we offer uh, to him. So in Luke 1, uh, verse 46, and then following on, Mary's Magnificat starts with this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So this is one of the most famous songs of Christmas. Now we sang some Christmas songs. If you were with us last week at our Christmas PJ party and brunch, we sang some Christmas songs. We didn't sing this Christmas song. And this is one of the most amazing songs of Christmas. It got me thinking about why we sing in church. 
and, and why we call that part of our services worship. Because as I said last time, you know, many of us who grew up in a non-denominational church are pretty used to calling the singing time in church the worship time. And I think I actually corrected that last time. And that's part of what it means to worship, but it's not the whole thing, but it is a part. And so I wanted to talk about that specific part of our worship here uh, this morning. Having laid the foundation for worship with my last message, I want to talk about how we worship specifically in our gatherings and give what I think will be a biblical case for why we should worship the way that we worship and, and maybe even just like a prompting to go for it a little bit more, knowing that the Bible sets the precedent for how we worship. So I'm going to start with the sounds of praise, and then I'm going to talk about the postures of praise, okay? Now, there's actually seven words for praise in the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament, okay? Um, seven different words, and that's kind of interesting because each one has a little bit of a different emphasis. They all get translated into the word praise in English, but there's different connotations which with each word in the actual Hebrew. So I'm going to use that as our guiding point, those seven different words. But all told, the, the Bible contains over 400 different references to singing, okay? And 50 of those are direct commands to sing. So 50 times in the scriptures were commanded to sing. In fact, the longest book of the Bible, you probably know, is the Psalms. And it's a book of songs. People call this the Christian hymnal or the Jewish hymnal. And in the, in, in, in the New Testament, once we progress past the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we're commanded not just once, but twice to sing songs to sing hymns, and to sing spiritual songs to one another when we gather. That comes from Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. So in the Old Testament, remember, uh, this was Jesus' Bible. The scripture he told us he came not to abolish, but to fulfill. There's, there's these seven different ways in Hebrew to say praise. And, and as I explained, some of those are lost in translation, but they each have their own connotation. And I think that as we, as we study those, you'll see that those different words can have some really important meaning for how we ought to worship. So the first thing I want to say, the first word for praise that's important for us today has to do with the use of music and song in our praise. Of course, I could praise somebody or something just by using my mouth in a normal speech, right? I praise the Lord. I'm praising him, right? But there's actually two words in the Hebrew that specifically um, connote the idea of music or song as an act of celebration and praise. The first one is Zamar or Zamar. Luther uh, says this because Zamar, um, Zamar means to sing, to give praises through music. And actually Martin Luther said this, he, he said this about music. He said, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. Beautiful music is the art of the prophets that can calm the agitations of the soul. And it is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given us. So this word Zamar uh, is used in Psalm 33, one through four. It's used in Psalm 150, verse 4, Psalm 144, verse 9, and Psalm 101, verse 1. Zamar, to make music, to celebrate, to praise the Lord through music. There's another word that has to do with song, and this word is telhilah. Telhilah. And telhilah connotes the idea of giving a song of praise, in particular, 
a spontaneous or new song. This is the kind of song that maybe just comes from the heart as we're worshiping. Maybe not the type of song that's up on the screen. Psalm 22.3 says this, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And that word praises in verse 3 is actually telhilah. It's that spontaneous new idea of song. Psalm 40 verse 3 uses the same word. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. If we go to the New Testament, we also, we see this idea of new songs being lifted up in worship as well. It says in in the book of Revelation, two different instances, it says, uh, this is uh, chapter 14, verse three. It says, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. So it says, you know, here's this picture of this incredible multitude at the end of time, all singing a new song that they seem to know. That's actually quite miraculous, isn't it? So that's in Revelation uh, chapter 14. Then in Revelation 5, it says, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. So again, this word for praise that we see used in the Hebrew is telhalah. So zamar, music, making music for praise, and then tehalah, a song of praise that's spontaneous or new. Charles Spurgeon says this about the, you know, and I think it applies to, to this picture that we see in the book of Revelation, but Charles Spurgeon says that praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. By grace, we learn to sing, and in glory, we continue to sing. Isn't that an amazing picture of what our lives will look like in glory? All together, those of us who've been found in Jesus, worshiping the Lamb, worthy, 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 singing new songs of praise all together. The second uh, word in Hebrew that is used uh, for praise has to do again with sounds, Sounds of praise. So we had music, we had singing, singing new songs. The second word is shabak. And shabak actually means to shout in, in like a triumphal way. And shabak is used in Psalm 145.4. Check this out, uh, where, where it says, one generation commends your works to another. Some translations say, one generation commends your works to another, shouts your works to another. Um, then Psalm 63.4 says, I will praise you as long as I live. I will shabak. I will shout in triumph. You, O Lord, as long as I live and in your name, I will lift up my hands. Other precedents uh, for shouting in, uh, come from, coming from the book of Psalms here, uh, Psalm 98, four, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth burst into jubilant song with music. Did you know the Bible sets a precedent, even commands us to shout as we sing. Are there any shouters in the room? (laughs) You know, sometimes we might think that's a little bit awkward to do in a worship setting, but not according to the Bible. And so we have to decide, you know, if if we're a people of the Bible, maybe shouting would be appropriate at times in our corporate worship gatherings. I could go on and on, Psalm 35, 27. Psalm 71, 23 says this, my lips will shout for joy. When I sing praise to you, I, whom you have delivered, look, God is worth shouting about, is he not? 
The idea of shouting praise to God is a biblical idea. So bring your shouts into our worship gathering. It'd be awesome. Maybe we should shout a little bit more. Ezra 3.11 says this, all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house the Lord of the Lord was laid. Isaiah 12 says, shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. All kinds of examples of these types of sounds of praise. We've got music, we've got songs, we've got new songs, we've got shouting. Again, all with just an expansive list of biblical precedent. If you want more verses, come get them. I got a whole list, verses I didn't even read because I had so much material. Singing and shouting, sounds of praise. Now, now, why do you think that scripture would call us to do these things? And uh, why, would, why would scripture uh, entreat us to music, to singing, even to shouting? Let's take a look at, at what some great preachers have said from the past. Jonathan Edwards says this about how singing helps us engage emotionally with words. He says he's going to say that they that singing helps us connect the head to the heart and the heart to the head. Now, Jonathan Edwards, maybe you're familiar. He was a great preacher, great American preacher of the 18th century. So these are old words. And we, we tend to think of old, uh, old faith, old worship being really prim and proper, stoic, tie, suit, right? But this is what Jonathan Edwards says about... Um, about worship, about singing. He says, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections, religious emotions. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse with a metric rhyme rather than in prose with no rhyme or meter at all and, and do it with music. But only that such is our nature and frame that these things this music, this shouting, this singing have a tendency to move our affections. According to Jonathan Edwards, music's main role is to move our affections. I'll, I'll go next to a more modern uh, teacher, a guy named Bob Coughlin of Sovereign Grace Music. He, he has a lot to say about the theology of music. He says this, he says, some of us are afraid of getting too emotional when we sing. But, but the problem isn't emotions, it's emotionalism. See, emotionalism pursues feelings as ends in themselves. It's wanting to feel something with no regard for how that feeling is produced or its ultimate purpose. Emotionalism can also assume that heightened feelings are the infallible sign that God is present, and they're not. The emotion, the emotions that singing is meant to evoke are responses to the truths we're singing about God, his glory, his greatness, his goodness. Vibrant singing enables us to connect truth about God seamlessly with passion so that we can combine doctrine and devotion, edification and expression, mind and heart. According to Bob Coughlin, music's primary function is to connect our heads and our hearts and to aim ourselves towards God's glory, his greatness and his goodness. That's a powerful quote. Now, anyone wonder about the, the, the potential of the power of music? I'm talking about music being a really powerful force, an emotive force 
a force that, that connects our affections. Anyone concerned about the power of music and the potential danger of its connections to the emotions? Actually, some of you are familiar with the great uh, fourth century theologian, Augustine. Augustine was actually worried about the power of music. He says, I am inclined, though I pronounce no irrevocable opinion on this subject, to approve of the use of singing in the church, so that by the delights of the ear, the weaker minds may be stimulated to a devotional mood. Yet when it happens that I am more moved by the singing than by what is sung, I confess myself to have sinned wickedly. And then I would rather not have heard the singing. A reformer named Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss pastor who lived in the 16th century, he went even further. He was so concerned about the emotional power of music that for a time he banned music from his meetings, despite what all scripture has set as a precedent for singing and for music and even shouting. The power and the emotion of music is so strong that some great minds have thought we should be careful. Now, in, in my mind, you know, you're, maybe you're asking, no, why are you reading these arguments? You're trying to persuade us towards singing and praise. You're trying to persuade us towards the good of music in our worship. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up, because in, in my mind, these arguments for caution, they're actually, they're actually arguments for the use of music, not against the inclusion of music. Look, the scriptures are clear. We're even commanded to sing, to use music, and even to shout in the scriptures. And these things are powerful ways of connecting our hearts to God. So powerful that some great theologians have been afraid of their power at times. Look, there's a reason God gave us music and commanded us to sing. It's because it's a powerful mover of the emotions. That's not a downside. It's actually an upside. We need to have our emotions connected to worship of God. The second thing that, that singing does is that singing helps unite us together as believers. Singing helps unite us together as believers. Check this out. Did you know this? Scientists actually have found that singing corporately produces a chemical change in our bodies. And that, that chemical change in our bodies, it contributes to a sense of bonding. Families that sing together, stay together, evidently. And that's what we are. We're a family and, and singing actually has a way of binding us together, especially when we sing the same things in unison, all together. We sing the same things about God. It has a powerful effect of binding us together. Think back again to that, that picture I already gave of Revelation with the multitudes gathered around the Lamb, Jesus Christ, raising their voices in song together. Imagine the unity that we'll feel. Singing helps unite us together as believers. So I want to talk next about not just that we sing, but how we sing, how we sing. Now, John Wesley, if you're familiar with Wesley, he, he formed um, the uh, Methodist Church, um, which has kind of gone a, a wacky direction. But nonetheless, John Wesley had um, um, some really great leadership. And John Wesley was actually known for writing hymns. He's one of the great composers of the Christian church. John Wesley says this about how we sing. He says, sing lustily and with good courage. He says, beware of singing as if you were half dead 
or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. John Wesley, the great author of the Christian hymnals says, lift up your voice with courage, with strength, not as if you were half dead or half asleep. Deuteronomy 6, 5 kind of echoes this idea of, of singing with strength or, or worshiping with strength. When it says in the, the famous Hebrew Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Look, we are physical embodied people. We're not just souls floating around on the clouds. The physical matters. The physical can drive our response to God. So part of our response to God is in song. But what I want to focus on next is, is how we sing and how we involve the body. We've talked already about the sounds of praise. We've talked about music. We've talked about new songs. We've talked about shouting. And now I want to talk about some of the postures of praise. Again, playing off of these seven different words uh, for praise uh, used in the Hebrew language. First, let me start with a quote from John Calvin. Maybe not the person you think of when you think of demonstrative worship, but this is what John Calvin has to say. The inward attitude certainly holds first place in prayer. That's his way of saying the orientation of your heart. That's the most important thing. But outward signs like kneeling, like uncovering the head, like lifting the hands have a twofold use. The first is that we may employ all our members for the glory and worship of God. Secondly, that we are, so to speak, jolted out of our laziness by this help. There is also a third use in solemn and public prayer because in this way, the sons of God profess their piety and they inflame each other with reverence of God. See, John Calvin says, using your body is the way to wake up your soul to worship. And, and I think that can be powerful even when we're not feeling it. Waking up our soul through demonstration, through physical participation in worship. And then, and then lastly, he's just affirming what the scientist already said in the quote that I gave you. He's saying that, that we inflame each other with reverence for God as we worship together, especially when we do so in a way that's physical. So what does the Bible have to say about this physical brand of worship? Another word used in the Hebrew scriptures for praise is yadah. Now, yadah refers or connotes specifically the idea of hands being lifted up in praise. It involves the extension of the arms. This phrase is actually used and translated in, as praise 111 times in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 145, verse 10, all your works praise you, Lord. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. Psalm 67, 3 uses Yadah. Psalm 44, 8 uses Yadah. So this idea of praising with hands extended comes from the Hebrew word Yadah. There's another word in Hebrew that, uh, that gives us this idea of hands being extended. And this one is Todah. Todah. Todah is the lifting of the hands in praise to God, uh, but specifically as a sign of faith for promises to come. I love this idea. Think about that. The next time you raise your hands in worship, 
expressing praise for what God's going to do. That's an act of faith. We see this in Psalm 56, 11. We see this in Psalm 50, 22 and 23. We see it in Psalm 141, Psalm 88, 9, Hebrew 11, 6, 1 Corinthians 2, 5. All give us this idea of hands extended in praise. So, you know, why and when would we do this? You know, and, and I like to, I like to kind of joke a little bit about, you know, you could, this, this is like total surrender, right? Then we got the kind of the hands at half mast right here. I'm like sort of surrendered. I'm like open down here. We're just like, eh, kind of, I don't know. No, but I, but I joke, but I, I mean, each of those postures kind of mean something different, don't they? I mean, when our hands are up high, this is a position of full surrender, right? Isn't this what we do when it's like, you know, put up your hands, right? When the, when you get uh, accosted by the police, it's hands in the air right away. I surrender. This position makes it so you don't get shot, right? Um, but it's also like a sign of yearning, hands up in the air, like, like really desperately wanting something. Like think about what we do at like a, a sports game when they're shooting those t-shirts up into the stands. You're like, me, 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 pick me, pick me. That posture of yearning. Or, or how about exuberance? Uh, like, for example, one of my favorite things to do, touchdown! Isn't that the greatest uh, sports signal that there is? Uh, in fact, I, I got a little video for you guys. Uh, I wanted to show you. This is, um, this is video from our, um, our, our 12 and under youth football team here. Tyler over there, Tyler. Um, he was the head coach of this team. Anyways, take a look at this sideline and these grown men. This is Tyler right here. You can see him. I got him circled. And watch what happens as that ball goes across the end zone. Yes, exuberance, hands in the air. There's even leaping going on in that scene. This is a natural expression of excitement and celebration. It should be totally welcome in our worship settings. You all have permission to raise your hands, to leap for joy as we sing praises to God. Now, you see how our posture matters, doesn't it? Our posture makes a difference. There's another word here. We're getting, we're getting closer. We're progressing our way through the Hebrew words uh, for praise. But the next one has to do with, uh, with the idea of clapping. This one actually isn't like a Hebrew word for praise. This is just another dem demonstrative way, demonstrative way that we can worship. Uh, in Psalm 47, one, it says, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout unto God with the voice of joy. But clapping is just, an, it's, an, it's an action of excitement. It's an action maybe of like applause. Who would we be cheering for? Well, of course, we'd be cheering for the most high God in our worship through our clapping. Of course, think of, the, think of what you do at a sporting event or after a performance. You clap, right? This is a way of demonstrating praise and honor. Also, clapping can be rhythmic, right? It's a type of percussion, really. Now, we don't often have a drummer at this point in our church's worship. So using the hands, putting the hands together is a type of percussion. So that's pretty cool. Clapping's both a display of excitement and it's a bit of percussion. Express yourself in worship to the Lord. Which brings me to dancing. <laughs> Dancing's gotten a bad name 
But again, there's tons of biblical precedent and even commands to dance as a response, as a right and a fitting response to the Lord. Did you know that the Greek word used in the New Testament for rejoice carries this connotation of jumping? Rejoice! Rejoice! Imagine, I, my soul just jumps when I say that word rejoice. Anyways, dancing, bouncing, jumping up and down. These are all ways to worship the Lord as we sing. The uh, Old Testament word, the Hebrew word used for praise actually gives this connotation, this, this idea of just like jumping or leaping. It comes from the root word halal. Um, and it, it actually, it carries the connotation not only of dancing, but, but of being just kind of almost foolish in our response, being so expressive um, that, you're, that, that you're acting foolishly. Um, in fact, the, the root word hale is actually in one of the most popular uh, praise words that doesn't even get translated into English. Maybe you're familiar with hallelujah, the universal word for praise. This is the primary word translated for praise in the Old Testament. And, and, and even in the New Testament, it's used four times in Revelation 19 alone, hallelujah. Remember that epic worship scene I was talking about. Also, we see precedence uh, for dancing uh, in and of itself in, in, um, in our worship for like Psalms 149. It says, let, the, let them praise his name with dancing. Again, the Bible sets precedent for dancing as an act of worship. The final posture of praise that we see uh, in these Hebrew words is kneeling. And uh, the Hebrew word that connotes the idea of kneeling in praise is barak. Psalm 72.11, Psalm 72.15, Psalm 95.6, Ezekiel 3.23, Ephesians 3.14, Daniel 6, we see kneeling worship. Ezra 9.5, we see kneeling worship. Revelation 7, we see kneeling worship. To kneel is a posture of praise. Barak, the Hebrew word. John Calvin says this, just as the lifting up of the hands is a symbol of confidence and longing, so in order to show our humility, we fall down on our knees. Have you ever felt so in awe of God, so humbled before God, that you just felt compelled to go to your knees? Or maybe, maybe you didn't feel that way, but you had a sense in worship that you ought to feel that way. Have you ever had that sense where you should, you just had this feeling of like, man, I've got to get to my knees. I don't feel like it, but God is so great. I need to humble myself before him. So Barak, to kneel and pray. So all these are different ways of being demonstrative with our praises, using our bodies to praise the Lord. Hopefully what you've gotten a glimpse for today is the overwhelming biblical precedent for a multitude of demonstrative postures of praise. Look, sometimes we think that demonstrative worship is for the crazy people. And us like smart, rational Bible people over here, you know, we're not gonna be caught up in the emotions. Well, guess what, Bible people? This is how the Bible teaches us to worship, with our bodies. It's not just for the crazy, emotional people. Remember the science about corporate song. See, what we do together binds us together. We can push one another on toward love and good deeds in the case of the acts of worship. Look, I would suggest you should think a lot about how you posture, a lot about how your posture and your praise impacts 
those around you and how helpful it might be for others if you let go a little bit. You know, when we, uh, when we first um, came to Radiant Church in 2010, um, I remember talking with Pastor Travis after one of our Sunday mornings where the worship had just been very dynamic. And, and I remember like saying like, man, that was so awesome in worship today. And, and tr- his response was like, yeah, you know, it kind of helps when everyone's going for it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does help. It helps me go for it when you're all going for it. It helps me get demonstrative when you're being demonstrative, when you're singing from the bottom of your heart with all your might. It helps me sing from the bottom of my heart with all my might. Look, how's your posture impacting the posture of others? As we close today, I just want to lead us into a time of reflection. I'm going to pray and we're actually going to sing a couple songs after the message today. And uh, in that first song, I want you to think specifically about how God might be calling you to grow as a worshiper. I wonder if you search your heart, if you ask the Lord and you said, search me, oh God, and know my heart. And you were to ask yourself and ask the Lord, ask yourself before the Lord, God, what's holding me back? What am I holding back? And how can I grow? Search me, oh God, and know my heart. We're going to start with one song of, and I hope to just give you a a chance to grow. I want to be here today. Maybe some of you want to clap. Some of you have been wanting to shout for a long time. I don't know the response that God might be putting on your heart this morning, but I wanted just to practice with this next song. And then as we often do, when that second song comes on, we'll come forward We'll respond with the Lord's uh, Supper, uh, receiving the body and blood of Jesus through the the bread and the the cup. But get reflective today. And let let me just end in prayer. Lord uh, Jesus, I just ask that you would um, show us where we've been holding back. In the story where we read about the the widow's might in Luke, we we recognize that it's, it's not how much we give, it's like the ratio of what we give. And we want to be a people who make room for you. We want to be a people who give you our best, whatever that looks like. Who give you our all, whatever that looks like. And we're just asking this morning, Lord, that you would grow us in this way. Would you teach us to worship you in spirit and in truth? Amen. Hey, hey, it's Pastor Noel again. Just wanted to say thanks so much for joining us here at the Extra Valley Church Podcast. And don't be afraid to join us in person on a Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. at the Exeter Memorial Building.